We are in a sermon series on the first letter of John, and what I'm really enjoying about this series is the way that the first letter of John syncs up and in many places with the, using the same words or the same thoughts. I'm calling this sermon series Spiritual Gardening because Alexander Shia taught me to consider the setting of the gospel of John to be the garden. And so the first week we tended to the soil and I described the ideal community as an imperfect community. And last week, Matt talked about our divine heritage, our roots, that we are all children of God. And this week, I want to talk about the blooms or the fruit of the plant. In my own yard, I use a particular kind of plant food that when I remember to mix it into the watering can yields really excellent results. And so I wondered as I studied this scripture passage, is there spiritual food that guarantees good growth? So this is 1 John chapter 3 beginning with verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this, we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God and we receive from him whatever we ask because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. All who obey his commandments abide in him and he abides in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit that he has given us. Amen. Karen Wright Marsh wrote a book that's titled Vintage Saints and Sinners. And she also has a podcast by the very same name. What Karen does so beautifully is tell the stories of the familiar saints of our faith. Like Mother Teresa and Martin Luther, and Francis of Assisi, and Howard Thurman. I often use her book, Vintage Saints and Sinners, as a reference because the stories help me to see who these saints really were, the struggles that they had to overcome, the hardships uh, that they had. And yet, these saints are all still people who are way more accomplished in the faith than I hope to be. So I was relieved this week when I heard on the podcast a story from a woman in Chicago. Her name was Larisha Hawkins. And she said about Chicago that the weather can change on a dime in the springtime. It can go from really warm to really cold in a matter of hours. I think I might know something of this strange spring weather phenomenon this year. What Larisha Hawkins said what the story that she told was about riding on the L in Chicago. And the L in Chicago is the elevated train that has the tracks up in the sky of Chicago. She was riding 
one evening, this train, and she sees a woman who's sitting down the aisle from her, and the woman is working on her laptop, and she immediately thinks, well, that's not very wise. That's unwise on this train because it's evening, and she's not being aware of her surroundings, and there's been a rash of burglaries, and the common wisdom is you just don't take out your electronics on the L because someone will grab them and run off with them. So as the train went through one of the most infamous neighborhoods in Chicago, a neighborhood with a high poverty rate and high crime rate, the woman, uh, the doors open, and a young man gets on the train, gets on the L. He's probably 17 or 18 years old, a young man of color. And the woman with the laptop starts chatting with him. The weather has just changed. It's just shifted from really sunny and nice to snowy, like it's going to snow. She hears the woman say to the young man, where's your jacket? Do you have a jacket? And he says back to her, I don't own a jacket. And so then she takes off her own windbreaker and hands it to him. And he gets off at the very next stop. And as he steps off the L, she says to him, you be safe out there. The young man gets on the train at the most dangerous stop in the city, and he gets off just a few stops later. And the woman regards him not with suspicion, but as a younger brother. Humility, simplicity, courage, solidarity, That story is a picture to me of ordinary sainthood. And it's the ordinary sainthood that first John calls us to. That scripture requires of us or really, actually it's probably that scripture desires for us. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for one another How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and refuses to help? So it's seeing a person, seeing a need, and simply giving. That is the love of Christ. There's another way to translate that verse that I just read. It's verse 17. You can find it in the RSV, the Revised Standard Version of the Bible. It says this, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, closes his heart, how does God's love abide in him? Closing and opening your heart. I'm fascinated by this image because, well, literally, I know I can't do it, right? My heart is an organ that operates all on its own without my will. I can't determine when it literally opens or closes. No matter how hard I try, I can't do it. Often I think of the heart as the seat of my emotions or my feelings. Sometimes I just use those concepts interchangeably like trust your heart or don't trust your heart or what's your heart telling you? But even here, I notice I don't have much control over my emotions or feelings. I try, but I usually fail. This passage 
in chapter 3 of 1 John mentions the heart repeatedly, four or five times, depending on your translation. And for the ancient writer, the concept of the heart was much larger than my concept of the heart. The heart was the center of the emotional and the intellectual life. So Dallas Willard said that biblically speaking, the heart is used as a metaphor to describe what's at the core of a person, what's central to the human system. The heart is the executive center where decisions and choices are made. I was reminded this week that for the ancient writers, they had no concept or very little concept of the brain. So those who wrote the Bible... For those who wrote the Bible, it's the heart that thinks. It's the heart that makes sense of emotion. It's the heart that makes decisions. There's a lot going on in a biblical heart. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says, guard your heart. Guard your heart because from it flows your whole life. So this isn't guard your feelings or make sure you have good and warm and fuzzy feelings. No, it's take care of the operating system. Yeah, care for what's going on internally at your core. From it flows your whole life. The Hebrew prophets wrote about the idea that the human heart has the capacity to decline. It has the capacity to decay. So Jeremiah mourns that human hearts are deceitful. And Ezekiel hopes that God will replace Israel's heart of stone. Can you imagine that the central part, the central piece of a person could be so alienated from other people, from God, from the truth, that it becomes cold and rigid, it becomes like stone, it's hard and it lacks integrity? It happens. It happens. Ezekiel's hope was for a new heart. For a new heart of soft flesh for God's people. And King David in the Psalms prayed, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. That's Psalm 51. Eugene Peterson rewrote it this way, God, make a fresh start in me. Make a fresh start in me. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. God can do that. God can make a fresh start in you and in me. God can create a pure and clean heart. Dallas Willard wrote a book titled Renovation of the Heart. And in it, he said, since the heart shapes the overall disposition, it must be cared for. It must be transformed. And it's transformed by the practices by the disciplines of formation into Christ-likeness. I think 1 John chapter 3 says the same thing. 1 John chapter 3 says, All who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. The word abide. John likes it. You heard it in the gospel this morning, and you heard it in the first letter to John. It means to dwell. It means to Be immersed. It means to inhale a place, to let the reality of the place shape your own reality. 
Elena Rourke was a student of Dallas Willard, and, and she wrote, when you abide, you make your home in that place, and its reality shapes yours. Consider the difference between a house and a home. A house is a physical place with physical qualities like walls and a roof and windows and doors and a kitchen and a bathroom. <laughs> but a home is different. A home is not about the particular physical qualities. It's not about the what. It's not about the where. A home is about the who. A home is about the how. Who is there and how it shapes you. That's a home. Robert Frost wrote, Home is where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. Yeah? I was thinking about home as the who and the how of a place, and the different houses that I've lived in the last couple of years. In the fall of, of 2019, we began renting an in-between house. It was small. It had a good location. It was old. In the hallway of this house, there was a shelf where you could plug in a telephone, and underneath that shelf, there was a smaller shelf where you could place your phone book. That's how old that house was. <laughs> it was a fine house for three people. But then 2020 happened, and my two college students, two college children came home. I had no choice. <laughs> like Robert Frost said, I had to let them in. I had to take them in. We were crowded, and the structure had problems, many, many problems, the kind I'm not accustomed to. <clears throat> but one afternoon, an older friend uh, stood in my front yard, a, a friend named Sue. She stood in my front yard because that's what we did in 2020, right? We didn't welcome one another into our homes. We stood in front yards. Sue stood in my front yard, and she said to me, charming home. And I rolled my eyes and said, I do not like it. However, I've learned to trust my older friends because they know a thing or two about life and what's good about life. And so then Sue said, you know, you know, Dinah, you're going to miss it when you're gone. I promise you there will be things that you will miss about this home. I doubt it, I said under my breath. <laughs> you know, I love my new house. It really is perfect for me and my family. I can't imagine a better place. But there are things that I miss about that old rent house. I miss going on long walks with my college-age daughters around the school where they went to high school. I heard stories I'd never heard before. I miss watching this really terrible modern western series every night with Keith. Oh, it was terrible. There's nothing worse on television, but I loved it. And we watched it every night. I've seen every episode. The house sat on a slope, and uh, we bought the slip and slide in 2020 so that when my son was done with his on-screen school, we'd roll that slip and slide out in the front yard and turn on the water, and then he would do tricks on the slip and slide. I miss that. 
I miss it. We sat on the front porch and we scored his form and his creativity and his agility, and that was fun. You know, it is the how and the who that I miss of that place. And that's what it is to abide. That's what it means to abide. Home is where we abide. And John's call is that we make our home in God, that we abide in God, that we let God shape us, that we inhale and exhale God's reality, and that reality was revealed to us in Jesus. That is the place where we are called, where we are invited to abide, to make a home. And this reality is exactly as Pastor Stephanie Spellers said in the video, it is the I'm with you reality. I'm with you in the muck. I'm with you in the loneliness. I'm with you in the nastiness of life. I'm with you. And I'm inviting you to be with other people. Theologian and and one-time dean of Duke Chapel, Sam Wells, said that God isn't a fixer or a protector or a guarantor of this or that that we think we must have. God's identity is simply this, to be with us. Not fixing, not doing us favors, just being with us. And some have argued that the central idea in the 23rd Psalm that we recited at the beginning of worship, the line that's found in the very center of that Psalm is, God is with me. I will fear no evil, for God is with me. The 20th century poet, uh, novelist, mystic, Evelyn Underhill one time wrote of her desire to be a sheepdog for the Good Shepherd. Not a sheep, but a sheepdog. Because, well, sheep, they're, they seem rather indifferent and somewhat clueless. But a sheepdog is focused on the shepherd. A sheepdog is attentive to the shepherd, working hard, doing what the shepherd desires. A sheepdog abides in the presence of the shepherd. The shepherd and the sheepdog work together. Nothing pleases the shepherd or the sheepdog either, for that matter, more than being with the other. I want to tell you a little bit more about the woman in Chicago named Larisha Hawkins that I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon. She's actually Dr. Larisha Hawkins. She was the spotter of the saints on the L train in Chicago, but she is also a professor of political science. She teaches now at the University of Virginia. Dr. Hawkins unwittingly became controversial in the evangelical world in 2016. In an effort to practice being with people, what she as a professor calls embodied solidarity. In practicing embodied solidarity with Muslim sisters, she offended her fellow Christians and she lost her job at Wheaton College. The Bible doesn't specify the kind of people we are to help. The only qualification in the Bible is that the person is in need. If you see a person in need, help. Dr. Hawkins saw a need and she sought to help. There's a a good documentary on television, something worth watching, about 
her very experience called Same God. And the movie makes the excellent point that there's a difference between theoretical solidarity, which is what I do for a living, stand up here and tell you about being with people, thinking nice thoughts. There's a difference between theoretical solidarity and embodied solidarity, which is what you do, what you'll do when you leave this place. And the Christian faith calls us to more than just kind thoughts. The Christian faith calls us to kind action, to loving and compassionate action. In the documentary, one of Dr. Hawkins' colleagues, a theologian, says, you know, we're not disembodied souls. We are embodied people. And so we engage one another We engage one another through our bodies, through our gender, through our profession, through our race, through our age, because we live out our faith, and it matters how we live out our faith. Our faith is to be with one another. Our faith is to be for one another, right? He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Would you pray with me? God of love and light and truth, we seek to abide in you. We seek to abide in your truth and in your love. That is why we worship this day, that your love would surround us, remind us of our identity, define us, and that your love would fuel our actions. You are with us. And we seek to be with others, with your children, our brothers and sisters. May we care well for one another as you care so well for us. Amen.